This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Natalie West, editor of We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. I think anytime you see there is an overlap of radical feminism and conservative Christianity, you know you have a problem, right? You know something is going awry. We'll be back with Natalie West in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven and a half years, I've produced more than 320 episodes of First Draft. Last year, I produced one a week, and already I have interviews scheduled for every week so far through June. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. We're going through monumental changes as a society, and as I discussed with the writer Claire Massoud in an interview late last year, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and I believe that what we create the writers and I and you, the listener, matters. There's an alchemy that happens with every single interview and every single production. So please, if you value this program, consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount. But starting with $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. I believe these conversations about art and craft make life better. I hope you find inspiration and enlightenment of some kind in this and every episode. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 320 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft. I work hard to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics, which dependably add up to conversations that focus on what it means to be alive today. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, edit the show, and do more research. Because at the end of the shows, I recommend other shows I've done in the past that are similar. All of this takes more time than you can probably imagine. It takes equipment, organization, a lot of late nights, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. In fact, tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. My guest today is Natalie West, editor of We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. West is a Los Angeles-based writer and educator. She worked as a professional dominatrix while obtaining her Ph.D. in gender studies. Her personal essays have appeared in Salon, Autostraddle, Kink Academy, Columbia Journal, and Them. 
She moonlights as a sex work, BDSM, and queer community authenticity consultant for film and television. We Too is a collection of narrative essays by sex workers, which present complicated stories of sexual harassment and violence, healing, motherhood, homelessness, and toxic masculinity. Also, empowerment. We Too gives voice to many who are typically working in the shadows. While all of the essays are told with some sort of sexual violation at the core, they are about resiliency and survival, strength and personal choice, and identity. The more than 30 writers fight for agency, accountability, and decriminalization and offer a glimpse into a world, a sensibility, and a profession that is not commonly discussed from such a personal and intimate angle. A portion of the proceeds from the book will be donated to Sex Workers Outreach Project Behind Bars. We began the interview with Natalie West sharing how the essay collection, We Too, came about. The book actually started for me around the time of the Me Too movement in, I guess it was what, spring 2018. And I should say the the revival of the Me Too movement. always want to acknowledge Tarana Burke's beginning of that movement in 2006. But in the spring of 2018, I wrote an essay for Salon. It was called What a Dominatrix Knows About Hashtag Me Too. And it took me a really long time to write that essay. I I think like a lot of folks who were writing in response to the Me Too movement and violence that that, um, we've experienced at work, so many people have experienced at work, it took me a really long time to write it, not just because that's a hard thing to do, but also because I was still working at the time actively as a professional dominatrix. And um, if you know anything about professional dominatrices, they're supposed to be, you know, tough and all powerful and, you know, a goddess amongst women. And so talking about my experience was really difficult. Um, but once I did, once I put it out into the world, I started thinking about, you know, all of the other people I knew who through sex work community have shared stories of violence with me. And, and there just didn't seem to be the same kind of outlet for the stories that we told amongst ourselves. Um, and even on social media, there were a lot of instances of sex workers trying to become part of the Me Too movement and being told, um, well, you were asking for it or like, you know, what do you expect? This is what you do for work. You know, because of that and because of that piece, I decided I wanted to kind of open it up and see if we could make a collection. And so there was a long process um, <laughs> that came from that into what you see today. But that was kind of like the beginning of it. And tell me a little bit about your background as a writer and as a sex worker. Yeah, sure. Um, so as as a writer, I mean, I, I'm an academic. I, um, you know, my, my sort of background in writing started in, in scholarly writing. And I was in a PhD program in Los Angeles um, that I started in 2010. Um, around 2012, I could no longer feed myself on my TA salary. Um, and like so many people do, was kind of looking for, okay, well, what kind of work can I do that will help me make ends meet, but not necessarily be something that I have to commit so much time to if I'm ever going to finish this PhD program. I was at the time dating, as one does on the internet. <laughs> met somebody through OkCupid who was a professional dominatrix. And after we had started dating for a while, she was like, look, you, you need to make ends meet. Like you have skills in this area that you're using in your, in your private personal life. Why don't you just be a pro dom too? And so she kind of taught me the ropes. And so I started working as um, an independent professional dominatrix then in around 2012. And so, I mean, now I'm, I'm basically retired. Um, part of that's because of COVID-19 and part of that has to do with just other things that are going on in my professional life that make it a bit difficult to, uh, to juggle careers. But yeah, so I worked for about um, like seven years as a professional dominant. When you decided to pursue that line of work, was there anything inside of you that felt like you were entering like a different territory that would change your identity potentially forever? Yeah, in a, in a few ways. Yeah, definitely in a few ways. Identify as queer, um, but I, I had been pretty lesbian identified my whole life or since adolescence, really. And so 
there was a big identity shift in that regard where, you know, I didn't really have many uh, sexual relationships with men, even any like that many personal relationships, honestly, like my community was very, um, was very like queer women focused. And so um, my identity really did shift when all of a sudden, like I was having, you know, really intimate and, you know, sometimes profound experiences with men that, you know, some of them were, were really beautiful. Some of them were scary. Some of them were just like, you know, gross. It's like <laughs> any kinds of relationships, I guess, that you get into. Um, but I'd never had that before. And, and while it didn't necessarily change my, like, the way that I identify my sexual orientation, it definitely complicated things. And I think kind of changed how I saw gender in the world. And then beyond that, you know, when you are, I think, a graduate student or an academic and a lot of other lines of work, you know, the that identity and sex work can feel, you know, at the completely opposite ends of the earth. And so I, I definitely had a lot of struggle for a long time trying to reconcile the two or even trying to, to hide one and, and, you know, be the other um, and, and vice versa. It wasn't just that I was like trying to be a graduate student and hide that I was a sex worker. Sometimes I was really trying to be a sex worker and hide the fact that I was a graduate student, but it was definitely a conflict and it took a long time to really figure out how to juggle it. And as you were putting together this book of essays, which contains over 30 essays, and it's separated into sections. So the first section is called Stigma, followed by the state, the workplace, family, survival, and healing. And each section has about five to six essays. So I'm wondering how you found the writers and how you decided to organize the book. You know, once it started to be like going to actually be a book, right? Because um, at first it was just like kind of putting out the feelers to uh, some folks that I knew, right? Like other sex workers who were in my community. Maybe I knew them through um, activist causes or I'd read some of their work online and I just kind of hit them up on Twitter and said like, hey, like I'm thinking about putting together a book proposal. Are you interested? So I had like a, a kind of core group of people that were maybe either folks who I already knew or folks who I really admired their writing and just wanted to get them on board. And then after that, I, I um, really needed to kind of fill in a lot of gaps. And I guess that that sort of leads to the um, organization of the book as well. I brought on a, an associate editor. So um, so you see that the book is edited by me and it says it's with Tina Horn. And she's somebody who has been in the, the sex worker activist scene for longer than me. She was also based on the East Coast. So we kind of had two different communities going. And um, we wanted to make sure that if we're you know, editing this collection of sex worker essays, that they weren't all people um, exactly like us. So we're both white cis women who have done a lot of professional domination and fetish work. Um, and that's one very like niche aspect of, of the sex worker umbrella. Um, there's so many different kinds of jobs and professions that fall under that umbrella. And so we knew that we needed to include um, the voices of strippers, of cam models, of escorts, of people who were incarcerated, of people who might be considered by sort of, you know, mainstream carceral feminists to be victims of trafficking. So we had a lot of kind of putting together a lot of different voices and making sure that we made contact with, um, with a lot of different kinds of workers. So you'll see in the way that the book is organized, it is not organized by profession. So it's not as if there's, you know, a kind of section for strippers or a section for escorts or um, porn performers. But when you see a section like the state, you get to see how the state, the police um, have affected the lives of strippers by doing police raids on um, clubs in New Orleans. Or you can see how um, police are doing stings that might um, try to entrap escorts, right? And so you have these sections like the state or in the section on healing, you have like a lot of different sorts of approaches to building community and sustaining community through violence. And so, um, so yeah, those kinds of big thematic um, sections, each of them have different workers with very different occupations. And as, as it starts out, I think this is in your essay, 
where the general idea is talking about that sex workers have this fear of speaking out and it could be about retribution or crackdown in the industry or, you know, fear of prosecution and that it was a risk sharing stories with civilians. So basically this book, you know, faced that fear and is putting something out there so publicly I think with with sex worker narrative, um, we often see this kind of binary where on the one hand, you have lots of stories of empowerment, right? And oftentimes those stories come from folks who are doing sex work from a position of privilege. Maybe they are folks who have a PhD or are white women who are working indoors, right? But you, you'll see that kind of like, you know, sex work has really empowered me as a feminist, changed my life, right? Like those kinds of stories. And then on the other hand, you hear stories of people being exploited, people who are compelled to do the labor in ways that that don't feel as empowering. And what we wanted to do with this book was undo that binary, right? Like that you can be doing this work and be facing violence, but still be doing the work of your own agency. And I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of mainstream work on sex work or or kind of approaches to sex work that don't include actual sex worker voices often do. They find sex workers to be either completely empowered and like, look at them, they're just having all the sex in the world and, and you know, it's great, like we don't have to care, or these poor people are being exploited. And when you're up against even a feminist movement that thinks that you're being exploited, it's really difficult to talk about the fact that, yeah, like you can be a sex worker who's choosing to do sex work and still experience violence and very much want to do the kinds of storytelling and activism that can help in that violence. So that was a real concern with the book. And it's something that um, I talked about with Tina, the associate editor, with the feminist press and with everybody who submitted work. And it was at the end of the day, I think for us, yes, it's a risk, but it's a risk that we really need to take if we're going to actually, you know, do the work of, of trying to make ourselves safer and, you know, trying to address folks, especially, uh, you know, this, this coming out with the feminist press has a feminist audience. Like we really do need to be able to have, you know, the audience of feminists who can rally around our causes and not to save us, but, but to help us destigmatize sex work. And that's, that's what we're trying to do to make sex workers safer. I think that was one of the most interesting points for me. And I, I learned a lot that I didn't know beforehand reading this book. And you're talking about this binary. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I learned about is that on one hand, sex workers and people's attitudes about this in the political sphere is a space where Christians and hardcore feminists meet because they don't want to advocate for decriminalization or they they see everyone as victims rather than a, a choice that people make for their career. So that's one side. But then the other side, I read in there also that fe- feminist movements have largely ignored sex workers. Can you talk about those things? You know, I think anytime you see there is an overlap of radical feminism and conservative Christianity, you know you have a problem, right? You know something is going awry. I think that in a lot of ways, it's difficult for mainstream feminist movements to grapple with labor um, and to grapple with with class. And, and some of that, I think, is at play here. Um, because at the end of the day, if you are not trying to work toward decriminalizing sex work, what you have is a labor market that's criminalized. And within that market, there can be no workers' rights, right? So if, if what we are trying to do is um, try, trying to decriminalize sex work so that sex workers can access labor laws, can, um, you know, not be incarcerated um, for their need to make money, if you want to be a feminist who is interested in the decriminalization of sex work, it's not just about, like, the sexy aspect of it, right? It is about work. Um, and I think that the mainstream feminist movement has a lot of trouble dealing with women who are poor, right? Or women who are struggling or, you know, just compelled to labor that that doesn't seem empowering in whatever kind of way. And so I think that, that some of that is at play. 
There's so many different sorts of backlashes against against sex positivity, right? So even if you're thinking about this kind of, you know, we write about in the book, this like happy hooker myth that like sex workers are liberated and empowered, but they're empowered through their sexuality. Like there are always going to be feminists who want to keep that at arm's length because there's, you know, like obviously still so much stigma just around women who are embracing their sexuality. And so, you know, like on the one hand, it could seem like those women, those sex workers are not respectable feminists because of their sexuality or those sex workers are not respectable feminists because of their work. And I think that it kind of hits it at both, at both angles. These essays are all so different and, and the writers are so diverse. I mean, you do have trans and non-binary and, and you know, blacks and Latinos and all kinds of, of voices in there. And I was thinking when I finished the collection, like what what kind of stories or themes appeared in, in most of these? And one of them, um, and rightly so because of the topic of the book, was that for sex workers, a lot of people might say if they do get assaulted at work that, hey, well, that's like you're walking into danger anyway. Like that's just part of it. Accept it. But that is not part of it. Like sex workers need to have a safe space. They need to have consent for what's going on. And it's not like someone who works at a coffee shop isn't also harassed or can have that kind of dangerous situation at work. So that was, to me, a unifying theme. Yeah, I mean, and, I, you know, part of that was in in our call, right? Like when we were calling for essays, we were calling for essays about violence, right? And so like uh, kind of across the board, we are getting, um, we did publish essays that that were about, you know, boundaries that were being crossed. Probably a way to talk about the kind of unifying function here is that these are all stories of consent violation, right? Um, in a lot of different ways. And, and I think that understanding that sex workers have boundaries and that, um, you know, our consent isn't just kind of purchased wholesale by clients is something that people have a really hard time understanding. And I think that's like kind of in like part of the question that you're asking is that like, you know, there's this assumption that sex workers don't have boundaries or that they're going to work and and things are going to um, are going to happen to them. And you're right that other, um, forms of labor can bring about like consent violations or indignities. Um, but you know, if you, if you're negotiating, for instance, um, say that you're going to a massage parlor and you are, um, you know, purchasing a a back massage, a, a shoulder massage, and you try to, uh, you know, in the moment, like get, more. You try to get a happy ending, you know, like nobody expects that that's going to happen in a, in a regular massage parlor, right? Like nobody expects that to be part of the day, but, um, people expect those kinds of, of boundary crossings, um, in sex work. And, and, you know, that's not the way that things are supposed to work. I mean, I, you know, in my time working as a pro dom, I learned a lot about negotiating boundaries, right? Like these are the things that we're going to do here today. These are the things that are, that are out of bounds. And the essays that become part of the book really do show that people have a lot of trouble with uh, respecting sex worker boundaries on the job. But I would also say that, you know, these are essays written by folks who go to work day in and day out. And every single day isn't the day that gets captured in the essay. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. You read in my in my introduction to the book that the book is not a it's not an argument for decriminalization. But the logic of the book is decrim. Um, and that is, um, you know, in order for us to have, we, we have to be able to have workers' rights. We have to be able to call the police if um, something dangerous happens and not be arrested, right? Like we have to be able to um, have some, some, you know, base level recourse if we're harmed. And, and the fact of the matter is that if you are a sex worker and you're assaulted at work, um, you're not able to call the police, right? Because you could be arrested, you know? So I think that it, at the base level, stories like this need to be motivating 
in, in terms of feminist and political movements to move toward decriminalization. And with that, um, we can start to move toward destigmatization, right? Because like, we're never gonna decrease stigma for sex working communities until we decriminalize them. If you're, if you're labeled a criminal, if what you're doing is illegal, you're never going to be able to chip away at the stigma. And that's where we're gonna start changing clients, right? Like if a client knows that they can't treat a sex worker with impunity, um, however they want, like that's where we can start get, getting some things to change. And, and I do hope that, that the book in some ways starts to make those cultural and, and political shifts. How can people be allies to this? I think first and foremost, listening to sex workers. I just read a piece in the New York Times Magazine, I think, earlier this week, talking about OnlyFans, right? There's been such a surge in, in OnlyFans membership and, and people selling nudes and, and trying to, you know, start careers in cam work or, or other forms of online sex work because of the, these massive surges of, of unemployment and particularly unemployment of women. And yes, there are like sex worker voices. Obviously, these reporters are, are interacting with sex workers, but we need more sex worker reporters. Like, like we need people like there are so many like fantastic freelance writers who want to do that kind of work in our own community. Um, so many of them are in this book. Um, those are the people that need to be writing the, the pieces in, in New York Magazine or um, New York Times Magazine, I think actually it was. Um, we need to hear more of these stories from ourselves. And so a great way to be an ally would be if you are hiring writers, if you are in the entertainment industry and you are doing some kinds of projects like film or television projects, like hire sex workers to tell our stories. Um, we are in so many different stories without our own voices being at the helm. And, and so I think that first and foremost, there's that. Obviously, doing the reading to, to educate yourself on the issue. Some books that I really recommend um, would be Juno Mack and Molly Smith's book, Revolting Prostitutes. That book was fantastic. Um, it came out, I think, in maybe 2018. Um, so it's, yeah, it came out in 2018 from Verso. It's a really great primer on, on decrim, on, um, on sort of like a global perspective of, um, on sex work. That would be a great thing to do. So just reading, listening to sex workers and um, you know, seeing what's happening locally um, all, all different kinds of communities have different things um, kind of coming up in, in local politics that, you know, sex work workers oftentimes have a real stake in. So, you know, kind of just educating yourself, follow sex workers on Twitter. That's where you're going to kind of, you know, pick up on those more like local political issues. Because, you know, unfortunately, it's not like we have like decrim on, on you know, big like state <laughs> ballot measures or anything like that right now. So, um, you know, looking for the ways that, that sex workers need help, um, listening to them and don't try to like impose help from the outside if you're not part of that community. One of the essays I really liked a lot um, was in the beginning. It was called Bifurcating by Juniper Fitzgerald. And mm -hmm. one of the, the main questions at the center of this is I can be a mother or a whore, but I can't be both. Yeah, I love this essay as well. Um, it really, it does, um, you know, kind of take us to so much of, of what we see, like in our culture broadly around motherhood. Um, I'm personally not a mother, but I have one. Um, and I, you know, like you, you do have that idea of like, you know, a mother, like who is your mother, right? Like you even have that idea of like the Madonna whore complex, which I think that, um, that Juniper maybe speaks about in this essay, which is to say that there's one kind of woman who can be pure, can be giving, can provide family and warmth and, and nurturing. And then there's another kind of woman who can be, who has to be completely bereft of that, right? That there's no in between. Um, and I think, you know, her essay, and then also Jesse Sage's essay in the piece, um, as parents, they, they speak about like what it, what it means to actually live in that kind of liminal space that our culture doesn't believe can exist. Because if you are a sex worker, then you're just a sex worker, right? Then you're just a whore. Like whatever you, your motherhood is kind of like 
in this position of, you know, how could you risk your children, right, to, to be doing this kind of work? <laughs> there are so many parents in this book who don't write about being parents, right, like those, those two writers do. Um, but there is a lot of parenthood in this book. And so, you know, that liminal position <laughs> really does exist. And yeah, yeah, J- uh, Juniper has another book called How Mamas Love Their Babies. Um, and it's a, it's a children's book um, that also features sex working mothers. And so I would really recommend that folks check that out too. Another essay that was so fascinating to me was called Undercover Agent. And it was this essay that was written a while ago and kind of facetiously the writer is saying you know come be an undercover agent you get to have sex and you get paid it's basically these people who take a part in a sting operation to bust a prostitute or sex worker and the question it raises that's so interesting is these men are getting paid so if you look at the definition of prostitutes they're prostitutes too yeah, and, and that, you know, that essay is so shocking, you know, thinking, and, and again, it was um, it was written some time ago. The, the writer of that essay, Norma Jean Almodovar, Almodovar is, is one of our, like, absolute elders in the sex worker rights movement. Um, she left the LAPD um, in the early 80s after, um, so she was a cop, but she was also working as an escort, um, and she went to jail for for a period of time, and then when she got out, she wrote a memoir called Cop to Call Girl, and um, she's just fantastic, <laughs> but her, her critique of, of the police and the ways that police officers will actually hire, yes, civilians to to go in and participate in sting operations that they sometimes will will have going on for months, right? Like like months of of time put in to, you know, spend time with with workers um, before actually doing a raid and, and arresting folks. These are aspects again of like policing that they don't reach the light of day until you talk to a sex worker who's, you know, been entrapped or, or been caught up in these kinds of things or been in, in community um, with folks who have. I hate to sound naive, but I, I know I will. The thing that was so shocking to me, even when I know what's going on in our society right now, is the number of people in this book who have been raped by cops after their arrest, before their arrest, raped by multiple cops in a room. I was flabbergasted and so disgusted. And, and, you know, I, it's like, I don't think, you know, naivete in that, in that regard, I don't even think it comes from being like a civilian. Like, I mean, when I was editing these stories, like holding on to all of that, it was a lot. There are multiple stories of, of folks who in the book have been assaulted by police officers. And again, that's, you know, that's, you know, criminalization for you, right? Because as, as a sex worker, as, um, you know, somebody who is is being arrested, like, these people are not empowered. And, and you know, nobody is listening, right? Like, if, if it's if it's difficult enough for women to be listened to when they've been assaulted, like, if, you know, add sex worker to that. And, um, and it's very hard to get your voice heard. Many people in their essays said that that sex work has actually healed their trauma. And it wasn't just one person. It was bringing agency and power into their lives. And I think a lot of people would be astonished at that. One one person that I have in mind um, is Ignacio Rivera's essay, who, you know, kind of talks about having been victimized early in life and then, you know, become a sex worker and been able to kind of take ownership and agency over, uh, you know, kinds of acts that, that have been abusive, right? You hear that? Yeah, you're right. Over and over in the book. And it's, it's something that I've experienced as well. I mean, I, as I said, in the, the beginning of our conversation, when I was younger, I didn't really have many relationships with men and the ones that I had had, you know, had, had turned violent in, in certain ways. And so, you know, having to like kind of renegotiate, okay, well, like, how do I have a relationship with a man that does have strong boundaries? And, you know, I taught myself a lot about, about boundaries, about using my voice, about negotiation, um, in sex work that, that, you know, now I use in all, all of my relationships really. 
um, and my vanilla job for that matter. So, you know, like this work can be really empowering. It can be empowering in terms of, uh, of sex and sexuality. It can be empowering in terms of taking power back from people who've taken it. And that's, you know, that's one approach to healing um, that works for some people. Obviously, that's not that's not like a kind of blanket, like this is how to heal your trauma sort of thing. But um, but those are stories that you'll find in this book. Absolutely. There was an essay called We All Deserve to Heal that was really interesting about a dominatrix. And one of the things she pointed out is you know, sometimes the relationships go really deep with these long-term clients. Sometimes it crosses boundaries, like not boundaries that you set up, but boundaries where maybe you go out to coffee with them sometime when, when you're not on the clock. And that one thing that happens often is that in this relationship, this sex worker client relationship, a lot of times confessions happen where a lot of people have heard, I need to tell you something I've never told anyone. Yeah. And I think that, you know, especially because sex workers have relationships with people that, you know, it's a, it's a, not often a sanctioned relationship. So all of the unsanctioned things in somebody's life can get dropped at the, at the doorstep of the unsanctioned person. Um, and yeah, that, that particular essay, um, the client makes a kind of confession to the worker that is just, um, you know, you have to then figure out what to do with it, right? Like, is this a, is this a, something that you want to engage with that person or not? And I, you know, I think at a certain, at a certain level, this happens to, to a lot of women. Um, and, and I should say, like, I'm, this is very late into this conversation. I keep using the word women. There are definitely people who identify of, uh, with all different kinds of gender formations in the book and indeed in sex work broadly, but the overwhelming majority of sex workers are women. And so sometimes I'll just say like women, but, you know, obviously I just want to acknowledge that not everybody in this book is a woman. Um, but the point I wanted to make is that, um, you know, oftentimes women are, are used as a kind of, you know, like just like, uh, I don't know, utilized for emotional labor that they didn't agree to. And so I think that that happens anyway. And then you add sex work to it, you add, you know, that kind of intimacy and like sometimes the sharing of the self in a way that you would never share it with your wife or your girlfriend. And um, yeah, some, some of what happens then um, can be something like, like these sorts of confessions that can be really difficult to manage. I have to also say when you skim down the each essay, people's names are phenomenal. <laughs> and I don't know like how many of these are given names. Like I'm assuming that Selena the stripper was not born with that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably safe assumption. But some of these names Reborn. Juniper Fitzgerald, Maggie McMuffin, Dia Dynasty, Rebel Cunt, Adesha yeah. Ray. What do you, what is it about the culture that these amazing names emerge. I mean, talk about writing, you know, they're, they're great names. Yeah. I mean, I think that some of it is like, I mean, it, it is too that, you know, part of what we're doing is like selling a self, right? Like, like you are um, selling a, a, an image. Right. Um, and a lot of folks like their, their worker name becomes their writer name becomes their activist name. Right. And so like, like, yeah, like, you know, having a name, like trying to find, I don't know, what's my favorite one. I think that, um, Sonia Aragon, I think that's actually a character from, uh, the Sopranos, but, but like, if you want to call yourself Dia Dynasty, like I want to book a session with Dia Dynasty. I mean, she's a professional dominatrix. I'm like, yes, please sign me up, right? Like there's a kind of like superhero element to it in some ways, right? Like you'll hear a lot, especially in, in the uh, pro-dom community, um, people are referred to as mistress, but oftentimes people will name, them, name themselves like queen something or princess something, right? Like you get a take on this persona that you that you work in. Um, and, you know, what's so what's so incredible here is like, you can use that, like take, have the bravery to use that name and then also write about your vulnerability, right? Like that's, that's I think, what is so, um, so powerful, but also so brave about this collection. I think, too, like fighting against stereotypes and people's assumptions, many, many of these writers had PhDs, were academics, mm -hmm. had a lot of education behind them. 
Yeah, I mean, even that in itself is almost like a, um, like within sex worker worlds, that's even kind of a cliche, like, oh, okay, yeah, like the the sex worker with the PhD, yeah, you all have one, we get it. Um, but I mean, like, that just speaks to like, you know, academic labor, right? I mean, that's like, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm ha- so happy that I found sex work. Um, and I, you know, found so much of myself through it, through the good and the bad. Um, but I never would have if I had gotten, <laughs> gotten paid a decent wage um, as, a, as a graduate student in the humanities. So I think that that's really just a testament to academia more than anything. I was curious when I was reading this, um, and it might come again from my own assumptions, but I was thinking, even though so many of these writers have had really challenging lives, I felt like maybe all these writers still had some degree of privilege within their lives or within the sex work community because they were, they could write, they could submit this. Mm -hmm. They, they had that ability. And I was thinking mostly about sex workers who might be prostitutes and working outside. Um, If there's a way that you could get the book to them or if you want, you know, how you want the book to get out to people who might, never come across it any other way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's why, you know, some of the folks who, um, like Krista Sacco and, and Britt Schultz, they were kind of, they were like, you know, interlocutors for, for folks who didn't have, you know, don't have access to writing, you know, a, con- a contribution for a book that's going to be edited, right? Like, um, like, there are folks whose voices did get included because we had other folks coming in and doing that kind of transcription. There are also pieces in the book um, that, you know, aren't marked out as such, but they're actually like told um, they're, they're spoken verbally. And then we had uh, transcriptionists who are working to put those words onto page. Um, so we did do some of that, um, but getting the the book into the hands of, of folks who, um, who need it, who are not, you know, going to, probably, you know, be ordering it on the Feminist Press website. Um, we are sending books to um, sex workers, uh, outreach project behind bars, and indeed, the royalties um, that we would get from this book are, are going to that organization, Sex Workers Outreach Project Behind Bars. Um, and so the book is going to circulate that way. Um, this The book has already even gone to um, one of our contributors, Alicia Walker, who is um, incarcerated now, and she's already circulating the book, and it's not even, you know, in print for <laughs> for people out in the world to to get. Um, but yeah, we're trying to get as many of these into prisons as we can. Um, so that's one way um, that we're we're trying to get it um, out into the world. And I think, you know, honestly, like we need to do what we can. And, and my, my, you know, kind of stack of books that the press sent me, um, I'm going to try to just get it to a swap chapter. So like get it into our activist networks, because while everybody might not be perusing the, the new releases at Feminist Press, um, there are a lot of sex workers who come from a lot of different backgrounds who are involved in activist movements and involved in, in kind of mutual care networks. And I think, you know, we just need to get them, get them to those places. And if anybody wants to buy books for, for those sex workers, buy them. I promise you I'll figure out how to get them to those networks. Yes. And then I think on the other end of the spectrum, lawmakers, judges, cops, DAs. Yeah. I hope it makes it into all of those hands. I really do. And that's so fascinating that some of these were dictated. That was, that was something that kind of had to happen, right? If, if we're just going for like, okay, like let's look for sex worker writers who have bylines, like the book would have been overwhelmingly white and, and cis and privileged in, in a lot of different ways, because, you know, that that's true of, of any community, right? Like the people who have their voices out there already are the people who already have the privilege to do so. And, and we wanted to make sure the book didn't look like that. Are there any essays or anything else about the book that we should talk about or that you'd like to talk about that we didn't? This book is about violence. It's about consent. It's about survival. But, you know, it, it sounds, I think, when, when you're kind of talking about it that way and all of the things we've touched on, it sounds really dark. And I just want to let folks know, like, you can pick up this book and not be just completely, you know, immersed in the darkness. Like the, the idea behind it was that we, you know, 
we need to walk through some of this darkness together so that we can forge community and find ways to make the world better. So, you know, it, it seems like it's a really dark book and in some ways it is, but I want people to know that there's also like a lot of, um, a lot of power, there's humor here. There's like, um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot in the book. It's, it's not just darkness. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer or editor? I've recently been digging into Maggie Doherty's The Equivalents. Um, it just came out this year. It's about Anne Sexton and a group of other women artists in the early 1960s who did this like program at Radcliffe College that was like the first of its kind to support women artists in a kind of interdisciplinary way and bring them all together. And it kind of just brought me back to my obsession with Anne Sexton, who I, who I've just loved like all the way since <laughs> like a little like baby writer in high school. So I'm going to read um, a poem of hers called The Breast. And it's from her collection, Love Poems um, from 1969. The Breast. This is the key to it. This is the key to everything. Preciously, I am worse than the gamekeeper's children picking for dust and bread. Here I am drumming up perfume. Let me go down on your carpet, your straw mattress, whatever's at hand, because the child in me is dying, dying. It is not that I am cattle to be eaten. It is not that I am some sort of street. But your hands found me like an architect. Jug full of milk. It was yours years ago when I lived in the valley of my bones, bones dumb in the swamp, little playthings. A xylophone maybe with skin stretched over it awkwardly. Only later did it become something real. Later I measured my size against movie stars. I didn't measure up. Something between my shoulders was there, but never enough. Sure, there was the meadow, but no young men singing the truth, nothing to tell truth by. Ignorant of men, I lay next to my sisters, and rising out of the ashes, I cry, my sex will be transfixed. Now I am your mother, your daughter, your brand new thing, a snail, a nest. I am alive when your fingers are. I wear silk, the cover to uncover because silk is what I want you to think of, but I dislike the cloth, it is too stern. So tell me anything, but track me like a climber, for here is the eye, here is the jewel, here is the excitement, the nipple learns. I am unbalanced, but I am not mad with snow. I am mad the way young girls are mad, with an offering, an offering. I burn the way money burns. You want to tell me a little more about why you chose that? I mean, I, I think that this poem to me, it feels like, it feels like finding power in the feminine, but in like the, the kind of gloss of it, the kind of trick of it. And that last line, I, I picked this too, obviously in relationship to our, our conversation, that last line, I burn the way money burns has always been to me like so connected to what sex work feels like because the the kind of burning the desire is you know you you're burning through it for a particular kind of reason um and and yeah I don't know that connection there is it's just always something I've kind of come back to you know in very different times I read this poem when I was like probably 17 years old and come back to it like as a sex worker in my 20s and just you know always been I don't know always felt something there. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to read just a, a little section from that essay that I talked about at the beginning of our interview. Um, the one that I, um, that I published in Salon. Um, and it's, it's from an essay titled, What a Sex Worker Knows About uh, Hashtag Me Too. Most of the time when I say the word no, I'm not in public at happy hour with a bar full of people watching where I feel relatively safe from any potential backlash. Most of the time when I refuse mail advance, we are alone in private dungeons or hotel rooms and the men who hear no follow it up with their own minor protests. Don't stop. 
please, mistress, please. They beg, make promises, and often refuse. Sometimes these refusals are pre-negotiated, part of the fantasy. Often they are not. Before hashtag MeToo revealed the frequency at which professional relationships between men and women have been marked by breaches of consent, I thought these clients simply considered my refusals part of a kinky game, rules that were made to be broken because they were made in a dungeon. Now I see these men differently. I imagine them hearing no at work, pushing their female coworkers toward the yes they are confident they can receive if they persist. I imagine them boasting to friends at first, she was reluctant, but then I convinced her. Sometimes they even tell me their stories of refusing to take no for an answer, how it's a skill that's helped them succeed in business. I wonder how often it's helped them succeed in sex. And so in terms of like that, that bit, I guess, being uh, difficult, it's not necessarily something that's gone through a lot of revision, indeed. <laughs> it, really, it really hasn't. I mean, like one round with an editor, I think, but it was difficult for me to, to kind of make all of these connections because I just think at the time, you know, in that moment, um, I really started rethinking so many things that I had heard or that I'd experienced in the dungeon and kind of just making connections that it was hard to put down the first time, I guess, is what I would say. Where do you write? Um, you know, before the pandemic, I was really a coffee shop writer. Um, you know, like I had to be in a coffee shop. Obviously I have adapted. Um, I kind of go through phases. Sometimes I just like am propped up in bed. And then sometimes I, you know, like, I think that's a terrible idea. I'm ruining my posture. I got to like sit at my desk. Um, but I have like, a. I have a, a lovely window in front of a, a, a writing desk and I'm lucky enough to have a, a room dedicated just to that. So that's really nice. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I love procrastinating with household chores. Um, it's really my favorite thing to do. If I need to get away from writing, I like vacuum the carpet. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, my girlfriend reads mostly everything that I write first. Uh, bless her for that. How have you dealt with rejection? I usually um, delete it and pretend it didn't happen and just continue sending things. I keep a spreadsheet for when it did happen so I don't accidentally resend, but I just pretend it didn't happen and keep sending things out. And what is your favorite word? I must have decided on this when I was deprived of coffee, but I really like percussive words. And so the word that I picked was percolate. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you as well. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Natalie West, editor of We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Emily Witt. We talked about her book, Future Sex, which explores internet dating, polyamory, and avant-garde sexual subcultures. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 280 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Anna North, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, and Alan Lightman. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.